Several years ago, before I came to uh, Woodside, I had the opportunity to plant a church in the neighborhood that my wife and I were living in uh, back in, in Akron, Ohio. And I rarely remember um, early on when I planted that church, I was all excited with the kind of vision and bustle of what it would look like to start a new, uh, new community. And um, in that season, I, I got the opportunity to go down to a conference in Florida um, of pastors and church planners to kind of learn some things about what I was doing. And uh, well, while I was there, um, I'll never forget, I, I went to a breakout session and I sat down in a room and um, the, the guy, I forget exactly what it was on, but the guy kind of started talking and then at some point he made this phrase. He said, something along these lines, one day your church will die. Well, that was super encouraging. Like, oh, great, right? <laughs> He's like, what is it going to be about? Man, I just remember in that moment stopping and pausing. It really caught me for a second. Yeah, the, at some point, whatever I'm starting, there's, there's going to be an end to it. Obviously, there was an end for me. I'm not there. Thankfully, the church is still going on. But there's something about being forced to consider the end that calls us to really think about the purpose. Like, what is this really about? And it hungers, it draws, I think, within us a desire for purpose and significance. I mean, the reality is your life will end someday. I know that's a real great way to start it. <laughs> like, hey, but it's true. And when you really think about that, all of us, I think, feel somewhere down deep in us, what is my life going to be about then? Like, what is, what is its purpose? What's the significance that I bring to the table? I don't know if you've ever had those moments where um, in your life you just feel real small and finite. I, I remember having this moment a few years ago. I got the chance to take uh, our family on the Maid of the Mist at Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've, any of you have had that experience. And if you haven't, you get in a boat and you get to go and, and ride down like right in the center of the falls. And if there is anything in this world that can make you feel small and deathly afraid, it's being right in the middle of Niagara Falls. Right? I'm like, I'm the guy who's like, clinging to my kids and wanting to hug the center post of the, like, don't go by the railings. Like, don't, don't go close, right? But, but I remember in that moment just the overwhelming, deafening noise of the falls and where I was and what I was experiencing, just thinking like, oh my goodness, like, I am so tiny. I just felt so insignificant in that moment. And yet also in those moments, there's some part of my heart that kind of longs for significance, like longs to be like, I, I don't want to be that. I want to be about something more. I mean, I think part and the reality of the, the human experience is that all of us find in these moments, kind of the, these transcendent moments, a desire to be connected with something bigger and deeper, something that matters more than us. And when we're faced with either the end of our life or the, the moments of our, our finitude, it draws out of us this desire to be connected with something greater than ourself. I actually think that's fundamental to the way that we were created. That we're actually meant to be driven towards finding eternal significance in something beyond us. I think that you and I were created for something more great and more big than we often realize. And the reality is most of us are living in a world that sold us a purpose and a life that's way below what we're actually designed and created for. 
I mean, I think when I look around the world and I see what we pursue, even in our culture, what's sold to us as the good life, what's, what's told as this will bring you meaning, this will bring you purpose, that every time we hit those markers, it actually draws us back to a place to say, man, that wasn't it. Maybe it's the next thing. Maybe it's the next thing. And I think all of us probably can share in one of my biggest fears, which one of my biggest fears when I think about these things is I fear the moment when I get to the end of my life and I look back and I say, I missed it. Like I think, I think I've wasted whatever I had and whatever was given to me on this, this earth. I mean, I fear that for myself. I fear that for the church. I fear that for you, that you would get to a point where you would look back and say, man, I miss the greater thing that my life was meant to be for. And so for the next couple weeks, I want to lean in a little bit to that tension and a little bit to that longing and a little bit to that question because my hope is that when you get to that point, you won't have wasted it, that you will actually have connected your life with the greater purpose, the greater meaning, the greater significance that you were created for. And so my aim in this little two-week series that we're going to engage in called Don't Waste Your Life is we're going to dig into Scripture to look at what I believe is a framework for our lives that, when understood, provides us a vision that gives our life that meaning, that meaning that I think your heart longed for, so that you can find the significance that God created you for. But here's my warning up front, two warnings. One... Some of what I'm going to say is not going to feel like that's my aim. I'm going to invite you to hang in with me because it will get there, but it's going to be challenging in the process. The second thing is, I'm just warning you right now, it's going to be a lot. So give me some time because here's the thing. I'm not aiming today for some simple spiritual nugget that you can take away and be like, oh, I went to church, got a good truth, all right, move on. Like, I'm aiming for the rewiring of how you think about your life and the world, your purpose, the purpose of everything, and unfortunately, that takes a little bit of work. So we're going to kind of dig in a little bit today. So if you're new or visiting with us, just sorry, first Sunday, we're going heavy, deep, this is how we are. So just my apologies up front. But with that said, I want to jump in this morning to get at our aim. And I think if we're going to do that... We have to begin really by laying a foundation for everything, right? If, if we're going to get at our purpose, I think the place we want to step back in and ask the question is like, okay, well, what is, what is this all about then? What is everything about? And to answer that question, I want to look at the passage I just read for you in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 is one of the greatest theological writings Period. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, most people would look. It's, it's one of the great theological arguments as the Apostle Paul writes a church, writes a letter to the church in Rome that essentially unpacks the implications and the realities of the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he has died for our sins, and that he has risen again. And for about 11 chapters, Paul unpacks in a masterful way the implications of what God has done in Jesus. But at the end of Romans chapter 11... Paul kind of pauses, and the verses we're going to look at, he kind of steps back in reflecting on all that he's just unpacked, and he kind of starts to realize just how incredible God is. Look what he says in Romans 11.33. I'll read it again for you, and just kind of as we go through it, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So as Paul unpacks all this truth of what God has done in the gospel, the place that he comes to is a step back and say, oh my goodness, how deep is God's wisdom? How how much does God know? He's unsearchable, right? When it comes to God, you realize you don't ever get to the end of God. There's no point in your life where you're like, I got God wrapped up, figured that one out, move on. No, he's literally unsearchable, Paul says. His ways are inscrutable, meaning they're impossible to fully understand, to fully grasp. Isaiah would say it this way, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways. Paul goes on, for who's known the mind of the Lord, and who's been his counselor? I mean, we sure try, don't we? God, I'll give you some of my advice, you listen to me. But Paul says, who's done that? Who's given God something that he should be repaid? Who who is God in debt to? No one. And here's his point. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So Paul spends several verses as he unpacks the gospel, stepping back and recognizing God is supreme. There is no one like him. No one can contain him. He's bigger. He's larger. He's more masterful, more wise than we could ever fully understand. Because God is supreme, everything then is about him. That's the starting point today. Everything is about God. That's Paul's point in verse 36, right? For from him... So Paul looks back and he says, everything that is, everything that has come, has come from God. He's the originator of it, the creator of it. He's the one who's brought it into existence. Everything that we know today ultimately finds its origin and starting point in God. Not only that, everything is through him. Meaning God sustains, orders, and governs all that is currently. There is nothing happening on this earth and in this universe that is happening apart from God. And not only that, all things are to him, meaning all of life, all of creation has a direction, and that direction is ultimately to him, to his purposes. And so Paul makes a clear starting point for us as we unpack what our purpose is by reminding us that everything is about him. Every galaxy and every subatomic particle Every event in history that's happened before is happening now and will happen. Every person, every plant, every animal, every insect, every moon, every sun, everything, it's all about God. Scripture witnesses this time and time again. And that's the foundation. If we're to understand for our lives, our purpose, the starting point we have to remind ourselves is everything that we know is ultimately about him. Once we understand that then, That means that life is ultimately about God. But here's the natural question. If life is about God, what is God about? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If life is about God, like what what is God about? What's his purpose in everything? I think that's important. If, If we're to understand our purpose, it's important for us to know what God's purpose is. Because that's what brings understanding in life. If we miss God's purpose, we miss the point of what life is ultimately about. Right? Think of it this way. Okay, I told you I'm from Akron. And already some of you are going to start laughing because you know where I'm going to go with this. But because I'm from Akron, I'm an adamant defender of the legacy of LeBron James 
in basketball, right? So I, I regularly get in discussions with people about how I think LeBron is the GOAT. And I'll, I'll usually bring up something like this, like this year, for those of you who are not basketball fans, LeBron James is probably going to do something that no basketball player has ever done before. Maybe next year, we'll see. He's going to score the most points in basketball history for a player. He's, he's reached accomplishes that no one else was. He's gone to eight straight finals. He'll likely finish top five in points and assists. You cannot look at his stats and not be impressed. And usually my argument goes, look at LeBron's stat sheet, look at what he's done, look at all this. And this is where my friends always come back to me because they'll always say, you know who actually the GOAT is, Jacob? It's Michael Jordan. Why? He's got six championships. And usually it's that point I have to close my mouth. Because why? Because the purpose of basketball isn't stats, it's winning. You can have all the stats you want. If you don't win, it doesn't matter. That's the purpose. It can be the same way in our lives. We can pad our stats and fill our lives with a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of accomplishments. But if those things aren't connected to the ultimate purpose that God has, we're just padding a stat sheet and wasting our lives instead of living for what the greater purpose is supposed to be. And so at some point, we all have to ask the question, if everything is about God, what's God's purpose? What am I meant to be ultimately connected to? And Paul tells us in the next phrase in Romans 11.36. So for from him and through him and to him are all things. Here's his next point. To him be glory forever. As Paul surveys everything that God is about, the place that he looks is to say, from everything, God is to be glorified forever. I would put it this way for how to help you understand. So when we talk about what is God about, God's ultimate purpose in all he does is his own glory. That is God's ultimate purpose. If you want to know what God is about, God is about, in everything he does, his own glory. Everything he has done, everything he is doing, and everything he will do is ultimately to show forth the radiance and magnificence of who he is as God. His purpose in the world is to glorify himself. That's what the glory of God is. It's the glory of God is the holiness, the completeness of God made visible or manifest in the world. And everything God does, he does to make much of himself, to glorify himself. And scripture testifies to this consistently at every single turn. I, I, want, I want to take a moment this morning. I'm going to do something we don't normally do. I'm going to walk you through scripture for a second. We're going to take a deep dive because what I want you to see is that this idea does not just come out of a couple verses that you just nitpick. But when you actually dig into scripture, when the Bible articulates God's purposes, it brings you back to the same idea time and time again. So we're going to take a second and we're going to dig into several verses. And if you're like, I can't keep up with all of this, it's on the back side of your bulletin. You can look at it later. But I want you to see how scripture attests to this time and time again. So you ready? Hold your breath. Here we go. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Isaiah 6.3 reminds us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? Full of his glory. Psalm 19.1 reminds us, the heavens declare the glory of God 
The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Why did God create human beings? Isaiah 43, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why in the story of Scripture does God call Abraham and form Israel? He tells us in Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Jeremiah 13, for as the loincloth clings to the waist of man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Why does God rescue the nation of Israel from Egypt? Psalm 106, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. Why did God create Pharaoh and harden Pharaoh's heart? Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God spare Israel in the wilderness? We find in the Torah. Ezekiel 20, but the house of Israel belled against me in the wilderness. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nation in whose sight I have brought them out. Why was God faithful to Israel in spite of their rebellious nature? 1 Samuel 12, Samuel says to the people, don't be afraid, you've done all this evil, yet you did not turn aside for following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why does God send Israel into exile and not cut them off? Isaiah 48, 9 remembers, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why does God restore Israel back from Israel, or from, from exile? Ezekiel 36, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Okay, that's just the Old Testament. I told you we're going deep. Let's go New Testament. Who's Jesus? Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What was Jesus' purpose in his death and resurrection? John 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Psalm 2, or Philippians 2, summarizes Jesus' work. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him in the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Jesus is Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does God forgive our sins? Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my namesake. 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I'm not done. Let's keep going. What is God's purpose in salvation? Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What's the purpose of the church? First Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 3, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or, or, or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. What's the Christian life about? Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen? And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 4, for God said, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Why does Jesus answer prayer? John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit about? John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Why does God give people, his people a mission? Isaiah 66, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my my glory. Psalm 86, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What is God praised for in heaven continually? Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 5, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Why will Jesus return? 2 Thessalonians 1, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. What will fill the new heavens and new earth that we look forward to? Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light. And what is God's vision for the world? Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. From beginning to end, and every place that you look for why does God do what he does, it all comes back to the same place. He does it for his glory and his name. God's ultimate purpose in everything he does is his own glory. And we have to begin to awaken to that reality if we are to find our purpose. We have to realize that the story is about God. It's not about us. We're part of it, but the end of everything God does 
what God is about is himself. And one of the greatest, most freeing truths that you can learn in your journey as a Christian is that God is for you, but God is not about you. God is about himself first and foremost. That is the end to which he does everything. Now, that can be a hard truth for us to understand. It can be hard for us to wrestle to think that what God does in the world, in all his works, is ultimately about himself. Because generally, we don't like people who are about themselves, right? What do we say if somebody's about themselves? They're full of themselves. They're arrogant. They're prideful. They're conceited. Right? That's our natural disposition. And so when we hear the truth that Scripture proclaims time and time again, that God's ultimate purpose in everything he does is himself, that's what he's about, our natural inclination is to say, I, I, I don't know about that. That feels, that feels wrong. John Piper actually brings up two objections in his book, Desiring God, that I think are important for us to understand to help us wrestle with this truth. The first is that we don't like people who are about themselves. So it can feel hard to think that that's how God ultimately is. Actually, there's a great um, quote by the actor Brad Pitt who grew up in a Christian environment who kind of makes this point. He said one time to Parade Magazine, I grew up believing in it and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me, you have to say that I'm the best and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me it would be about ego, and I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. That's how we feel. Wait, if God's all about himself, isn't that egotistical? But go back. What bothers us about people who think too much of themselves? It's that they think of themselves higher than they should. But how are you supposed to think of yourself when you're the highest, greatest, most glorious being that has ever, will ever exist? If you're holy as God is, you cannot think too highly of yourself. You're the highest. You're the greatest. And so if you're the highest and the greatest, if you're the place to which all things point and all things go, then it is right to think of yourself highly. You cannot give your glory to someone else or that thing becomes God. It becomes the higher or greater entity. So God is right to think of his own glory because that's the essence of who he is as God in being the highest and greatest being. The second thing that we struggle with, the tension that we feel in our hearts, is we are often taught that love, true love, is ultimately others-centered. So if we're truly to love someone, we cannot be about ourselves, we must be about them. But for God... His love is best expressed in being self-centered because he knows his own glory. He knows he is the highest, greatest, and most satisfying being. He's the only thing that can truly satisfy our hearts. And so for God to give us anything less than his own glory would be to give something that's less than what can fully satisfy his creation. So therefore, God must be self-centered and draw all things to himself so that you and I can receive our greatest, deepest joy in him. And so what we see, again, is that God is about his glory. And it is right for him to be so. And scripture makes that point clear time and time again. What God does, he does for his own glory. 
period. Now, when we begin to understand that, that helps us lead to our ultimate purpose. So if God's ultimate purpose in everything he does is his glory, then our ultimate purpose, naturally to follow, is to glorify God. If that's what God's about, then that's the game. That's life. We're then to be about glorifying him. You're designed, every part of you and every part of your life is designed to receive the glory of God and to reflect the glory of God back out into creation. That's your great purpose. That is what your heart longs for. The meaning and significance that you look for in all things is that. Several years, uh, many years ago, um, during the Reformation, uh, they got a group of scholars together in England. England was going through a civil war, and they realized there were some issues of faith, and so they decided to get a bunch of pastors and theologians from all across England and Scotland together to kind of center themselves on, what, it, what does the Scripture really teach? Like, what is the Bible really about? And they, they, um, they uh, produced one of the, the, I think, one of the, outside of Scripture, one of the better theological documents that's been produced in church history. It's called the Westminster Confession and Catechism. It's not perfect. It's got some things. But it's a really good place that articulates a lot of really deep truths about God. Part of that, what they produced was what's known as a catechism, which is a series of questions and answers that are meant to be used to help teach people the faith. And the first question that they ask in the Westminster Catechism is related to the thing that we're exploring today. They ask the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? Right? Remember old language, so they're talking mankind, human beings. What's our chief and highest end? Like when we look across scripture, when we study and see what is the thing, our purpose, what we're about to be about, and this was their conclusion, Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God. But I love that they don't stop there. And to enjoy him. Because it's as you glorify God that you find your deepest joy, your deepest purpose, and your deepest significance. That's what you're created for. You're created to behold the glory of God. That's what makes us unique as image bearers of God. And then to reflect that out into creation. And what our hearts are starved for, what we're looking for in all the ways we try to pad our stats in our lives is ultimately to find the significance that connects us with God's glory. That's why we long for something greater than ourselves. That's why we look beyond ourselves to find our significance, because we were designed to behold his glory. The problem is we're looking in all the wrong places. Here again, the words of John Piper, he says this, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there's greater healing in the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on a speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. And yet this is the gospel that we're sold hook, line, and sinker everywhere we turn. You want to find your meaning and significance? Look within. You want to define your reality and know what the world's about? You define it. You look for it. You're the center. You're what everything is about. 
You determine. And yet we're starved. We're starved for glory. And we keep seeking. And we think the next thing, the next act, the next whatever is going to be. But at the end of the day, we're designed to behold the glory of God. That's what fuels and satisfies our souls. That's what our great purpose is about, to receive and reflect his glory. Once you begin to see that, you begin to ask the question, okay, I'm created for God's glory. How do then I relate to it? Here again, find the helpful words of a theologian. He says, our glory doesn't compete with God's glory. It reflects it. And it does so by participating in it. God is always the source. We are forever the recipients. God is forever the sun. We are forever the prisms that refract the light of the sun. The glory is all God's, for it is his alone by nature, but we are allowed to participate in it by grace through faith, and we do this by being placed in, the, in Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that although you were created for glory, that's what you were created, to behold the glory of God and to reflect the glory of God. The sad reality is, in our sinfulness, all of us have turned from that great purpose. That's why Paul would say earlier in Romans 3, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have turned from that. We no longer behold the glory of God. We do not reflect the glory of God. We've turned from that light. How have we done that? Well, Paul explored it earlier in Romans 1 where he says this, For God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fuels, and here's the key, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, our culture isn't new. For the lifespan of humanity, we have sought to worship ourselves over beholding God's glory and worshiping him. That's our core problem. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to deal with that problem, that Jesus saw us in our sin, and he came, lived the perfect life, glorifying God in everything that he did, ultimately went to the cross and died the death that you and I deserved for our sins in order to cover our sins so we could be forgiven. Then he rose from the dead, defeating the enemy, defeating sin, defeating death, so that you and I could have new life and be restored back to our purpose of bearing and receiving the glory of God and reflecting it back out into the world. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're restored, you receive Christ, and now the hope of glory comes to live in you again. You can begin to reflect God's glory into the world and find your purpose and significance. Maybe you could think of it like this. Let me give you this illustration to help you think about it. Dave, cue the lights. So... Think of your life like a mirror. You're created as a mirror, which means a mirror is meant to receive light from a different source and reflect it back. This is the part where I try not to blind all of you, maybe just for a second so you get the point. Where's the power and light for the mirror? It's not in the mirror. It's in the source. And when the mirror is connected with the source, it finds its purpose 
and what it brings and the power it was designed for. But what happens when you turn the mirror away from its source? Darkness. It loses its purpose. You and I were created and designed as mirrors. That's what it means to be image bearers of God. We were to receive the glory of God and reflect the glory of God. But the problem is, in our sin, we've turned from the source and turned it on ourselves. And therefore, we've lost our purpose. We're no longer reflecting or finding the purpose we're in because we're too busy seeking to use the mirror to behold the mirror. And that's not what a mirror does. A mirror doesn't reflect itself. A mirror reflects its source. And if we turn the mirror from God and turn it on ourselves, we're not living and fulfilling our purpose. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus comes to restore our mirror. That he comes to bring us back to that purpose where we can live life to make much of God. And so, this is what you need to be reminded. You're a mirror created to receive and reflect the image of God. That is your purpose. Okay, I'll stop blinding you for a second. So, if that's tr- the case, which I believe scripture reminds us of it is, there's one simple conclusion that Paul then draws us to in Romans 12. Look at the next passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. So in conclusion of all that we've seen, in the majesty, the supremacy of God, that everything's about him, that he's about his glory, to him be glory forever, Paul says, I appeal. Here's what I am calling you now to do. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If our ultimate purpose is to glorify God, then the call in which we are meant to live is to do everything to his glory. To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to use Paul's language, is to make everything about us about him. It's to come to a place of surrender that says, God My life is not about me, it's about you. Therefore, would you let everything that I do make much of you? That's spiritual worship. Singing is a part of worship. True spiritual worship is a life lived to glorify God. And that's what Paul calls us to. That's where you find your meaning and significance when you live your life to make much of God, not about yourself. See, at the end of the day, the biggest problem we have with the reality that God is about God and not about us is that most of us are about us and not about God. But when we finally recognize our purpose and we start living our lives for him, suddenly all of life has meaning and significance, even the small things. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God of God. Paul's call is clear. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the most minutia, basic thing of existence, if you can do that to the glory of God, then you can do everything to the glory of God, right? I imagine if you can eat and drink to the glory of God, then you can work to the glory of God, you can parent to the glory of God, you can date to the glory of God. You can volunteer to the glory of God. You can vacation to the glory of God. You can do all things to his glory. 
When we recognize that everything can be done to God's glory, what it realizes is that all of life is a potential to glorify God in everything you do. Suddenly, all of life has meaning. Suddenly, everything has significance. From the small conversation I have with a friend to the work that God's given me to do over a lifetime. I remember several years ago, I took a trip with a guy to India. And he had been a scientist at Goodyear for uh, like 30 years and retired. And we were on this trip together, and he was telling me this story about how he went through a crisis in his faith. Because um, there was at some point where he looked back over his years of work, and he he thought, were those years just wasted? Like, did they matter? Should I have, like, been a pastor or a missionary? Should I have done something more more significant for God? That, That was like the tension that he felt. And he told me how he started to dig into Scripture and begin to realize, oh, no, God's created where everything is meant to go. That, that everything has the power and potential to make much of God. And that someone who's just as diligent and faithful in their job, who does it with justice and righteousness and good work and effort in the Lord, glorifies God just as much as a pastor on a stage preaching a sermon. Because everything can be done to God's he said that, he told me, he's like, that totally transformed the way he understood work. And I'll never forget, we were sitting at this place. He looked at me. He had one of those moments where he got calm. He looked at me and he, he said, Jacob, teach your people that their work matters. See, when you recognize your purpose is to glorify God and that you can glorify God in your work, your work matters. It does. It can be used to make much of who he is. And not only your work, everything Everything in your life can be used to glorify God. The question is whether you're doing that or not. Whether that's your purpose and you're aligned with God's purposes or you're still trying to use the things of life to make much of you. Friends, that's a dead end. You know it is. You know the more you pursue yourself, the more empty you feel. But the more you pursue God's glory and you make your life about Him, that's where you find live as a mirror, that's when you find your significance. And so that's my invitation and call for you today, to come back to that place where you behold the glory of God and you seek to reflect it out into the world. Now, so for some of us, there's some things that need to happen in order for that to take place. Right? Some of you, you need your mirror fixed. Right? Like, you're not living in that you haven't come to the place where you've put your faith in Jesus, where you've recognized that you're, because of your sin, you're not living in the way God has designed you to live. You're living apart from him, continuing to reflect yourself. Today, Jesus invites you to put your faith in him. And as you do that, he fixes your mirror. He brings you back to that place of meaning and significance. And listen, there is nothing that you have done that God cannot use in his purposes of glorifying himself and bringing redemption in your life. We saw that last week in the life of Joseph. The good news of the gospel is your mirror is never too broken for God to be able to fix it and put it back in place. For others of us, man, we, we've had our mirror fixed, but it needs some adjustment. Right? It's like when you get in the car and the rear of your mirror is pointing the opposite direction. You're like, that's not going to help me at all. For some of us, there's areas of our lives that we've not aligned with God's purposes. We haven't sought to glorify him. To glorify God is to look at those areas of a life and say, what does God want me to do with that part? How does God want me to live in that area? And as you do that, you begin to find your great purpose 
in that area. And then you move to the next. That's the process of sanctification until all of our life is aligned with glorifying God. So some of us, we need to adjust our mirror. At the end of the day, the call is a call back to make your life about God, to put him back at the center and to make everything you do about his glory. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My prayer is that the light of your life would forever reflect the greatness of the glory of God so that all people everywhere in Farmington Hills and the ends of the earth would give glory to the only one who is worthy of it for all eternity, our God in heaven. Lord, may it be so. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.